reading this morning is taken from the Old Testament book of Zechariah, the second to the last book of the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, we will start reading a verse in chapter 12, verse 10, and then move over to chapter 13, reading the first six verses of Zechariah chapter 13. So listen carefully now to the reading of God's holy word. Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Then moving down to chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. Also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day... Every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet, I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Must far the reading of God's holy word. Now you'll notice in our Bibles, at least most of the versions that we read from, that chapter 13 of Zechariah follows without a break in thought from chapter 12. And so we ought to think of that as a single unit, which I think extends down to verse 6 of chapter 13. It's a, it's a unit that begins, I think, in verse 10. Uh, of chapter 12, running down to verse 6 of chapter 13. In terms of time, in terms of chronology, um, it's talking about a single point. Because both chapters place these events on what verse 1 of chapter 13 describes, on that day, on that day. It's a phrase Zechariah uses some 16 times throughout his, 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 his letter. And you recall those opening chapters as a series of eight visions that Zechariah received from the Lord in the space of one night. We looked at one of those visions my last time I was with you, uh, that vision of uh, the high priest Joshua standing before the Lord with uh, soiled, defiled garments, being accused by Satan uh, for being unfit to stand in the presence of the Lord and God himself providing, removing those that uncleanness and providing robes and garments of of righteousness and salvation. Well, now we're moving into what we call the oracles 
what we, my sermons that were preached. And we need to consider that these oracles involve not only future prophecies, that's what we think of when we say the word a prophet or prophecy, but a lot of it has to do with preaching and exposing the sins of God's people in the present time and pointing and driving them, urging them to repentance and forgiveness in the Lord. And so chapter 12 ends here with the promise of God's Spirit producing deep mourning for sin over the one whom they have pierced. And then chapter 13 follows up with another promise that answers the need of every sinner who mourns over his sin. Verse 1, again, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And that really brings us to our first point, a fountain for cleansing in verse 1. The promise of a fountain of cleansing does not just appear suddenly in the book of Zechariah. Remember, he was a post-exilic prophet, one who was there after the exiles had returned from Babylon, from from Persia, uh, were seeking to rebuild a nation, the city of Jerusalem. The temple at this point was apparently not completely finished. Um, Haggai the prophet was also present, urging the people to complete that task. Zechariah is urging the people to seek spiritual reformation uh, through this cleansing fountain, through the forgiveness. Well, the book of Leviticus describes the institution of Israel's priesthood. In my Bible reading throughout the year, I finished Leviticus recently, and I assure you, for even a pastor, uh, it's, there are sections in there that are not easy for us to understand uh, the significance of all of these many cleansing rituals and, and sacrifices and things that people needed to do uh, to be acceptable uh, to, to worship God in his presence. So that book of Leviticus describes the institution of Israel's priesthood descended from the Levites and principally from the family of Aaron, and then all the various cleansings that were prescribed to remove uh, sin and impurity, often it was through the sprinkled blood of an animal sacrifice. But there were also various washings with water to make one ritually clean for service to God. And so, for example, on that that high holy day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, first of all, offer the blood of an animal sacrifice. Then he would, before he went into the, the holy place, and finally the Holy of Holies, which he was permitted to enter only once a year, he would cleanse himself, his body, with water before continuing the rest of that service. We'll look at that in a little more detail in our adult Sunday school class. Remember now, Zechariah was not only a prophet, but he was a priest. He was of the tribe of Levi and was descended from Aaron's family. So he was very familiar with all of these cleansing ceremonies and and these sacrifices. But Zechariah, who I mentioned earlier, is one of the last of these Old Testament prophets. He knew the writings of those earlier prophets. 
And there also we find the idea of cleansing from sin. Perhaps the most prominent text is Ezekiel 36, verse 25. And God makes this promise, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That is the text I'm convinced the Lord Jesus had in mind when he was meeting the Jewish leader, Nicodemus, a prominent uh, Jewish leader, member of the Pharisee uh, group, and who came to him by night. Presumably he did not want to be seen talking to an itinerant rabbi uh, by day. And he asks him uh, how, uh, how he basically can enter God's kingdom. And, and Jesus says to him, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he says, first of all, unless one is born again or born from above, the word carries both of those meetings. And then he goes on to say, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he's referring back, I think, to Ezekiel 36, 25, but basically to the law that required cleansing with water and also uh, the blood of an animal sacrifice on the Day of Atonement sprinkled there on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant between those, those two angelic forms uh, that hovered over that Ark. And that was the way to be reconciled, to have one's sins covered over, and to be fit to enter the presence of God and worship. So both the prophet Ezekiel and now Zechariah foresee a great fountain of cleansing opened. Not just sprinkling here with water, but an abounding, overflowing provision of grace to cleanse God's people from their sins. And as we'll see in a few minutes, especially that overarching, prominent, dominating sin of idolatry. But this is the remedy for sorrowing over sin. It's the answer for mourning over those who are, are mourning, who are looking upon the one whom they've pierced, back in verse 10 uh, of, of chapter 12. Well, the New Testament clearly points us to that cleansing blood, of our Lord Jesus shed on the cross as a fulfillment of this promise. That cleansing fountain, Zechariah says, will be freely offered on that day to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now that truth is, is clearly expressed in John's gospel. Uh, we'll look a little bit later in our adult, adult Sunday school class at John chapter 19 where John, the apostle, who is an eyewitness there to the crucifixion of Jesus, he considers that the prophecy of verse 10 of, of Zechariah 12, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, on him whom they have pierced. And John sees that fulfilled when that Roman soldier takes a spear and thrusts it into Jesus' side, and John says, blood and water came out. It flowed from his side. Well, we could put these things together and try to express it this way. The Apostle John, raised in Judaism, 
I would have known that in the Old Testament sacrificial system, blood was that appointed means of cleansing for sin. And that in the temple ceremonies, that water was used as a symbol of purification from sin. There was a big bronze sea, a huge laver there in the courtyard where the priest would wash himself and wash the animal sac- parts of the animal sacrifices before uh, they offered them up in, in sacrifice. They will look on the one whom they have pierced, in verse 10 of chapter 12. But now, it's followed four verses later, verse 1 of chapter 13, on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And so John, writing his gospel here through the insight of the Spirit of God, knew that deliverance from the penalty of sin and cleansing from its guilt and its defilement are to be found only in the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, the New Testament, which we understand simply as the fulfillment of all the types and the shadows and the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament understands the saving effects of Jesus' blood in terms of Old Testament sacrifices and cleansings. cleansings. And no book of the New Testament really develops this more than the book of Hebrews. The writer there in chapter 9 and 10 of Hebrews makes this so clear. For example, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 says, For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The writer there is arguing from lesser to greater. The sacrifices of the Old Testament had a temporary nature. They would cover over those sins and make the worshiper ceremonially fit to enter the presence of God. But they were all pointing ahead, and they found their limited efficacy and power and the full efficacy and power of the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to visit many of the medieval cathedrals of Europe, and even some fashioned like that in our own nation, you would find imagery, a lot of imagery of the sufferings of Jesus, the, uh, in some ways holding out his, his, his bleeding heart. But you see uh, statuary and, and pictures expressing the physical agony of Jesus Christ. And I don't want for a moment to minimize the physical agony of being crucified on a cross. It was a slow, painful, barbaric, and agonizing death. But thousands, thousands of criminals in the ancient world were crucified by the Romans. That's not what makes it unique. The suffering of Jesus was primarily spiritual anguish. It was inward suffering, not just physical. Because here, the eternal Son of God become human flesh who remained without sin, took upon himself the guilty record of all of his people and all of their sins and became defiled in the sight of a holy God. 
and the holy righteous wrath of God poured out upon the Savior in full measure as he bore the the weight of our guilty record in our place. That's physical anguish. But the good news of that is that that means the cleansing he provides is also inward, and it's also spiritual. It's not the body that Jesus cleanses. The baptisms that we perform in our churches and an outward ceremony, the pastor can only apply water to the body. But Jesus cleanses the heart. He cleanses us through the power of his spirit of all of our guilt and secures a peaceful conscience before God. Once again, the writer of Hebrews says that the Old Testament sacrifices, which had to be constantly repeated daily, morning, and evening sacrifices, They showed the need for a new and effective sacrifice. And so the writer of Hebrews really sums it up in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But then he goes on to say that the blood of Christ was shed once for all. And that points to the permanent once for all eternally valid removal of our sin. And the writer sums it up in chapter 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified. That means primarily here in this case, set apart from the world, from condemnation, and consecrated unto God. We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. That that second use of sanctified, I think, refers to the progressive work of the Spirit of God in us, enabling us to put to death sin each day and live more and more lives pleasing to our Lord. Well, let me quick draw this first point to a close. The promise of cleansing through this blood of Christ was offered in Jerusalem when the Apostle Peter preached that Pentecost sermon recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. Many who heard, Luke later records there in that chapter, 3,000 heard and believed. (coughs) So many in that huge audience there in the temple courtyard mourned for their sins and looked to Jesus for cleansing. You see, that fountain of cleansing blood for sinners had been opened at the cross. And now through repentance and faith in Jesus, the saving benefits of his blood were received. Isaiah, one of the early prophets, foretold this in familiar words, chapter 1, verse 18 of his prophecy. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. Do you remember Peter who once betrayed his Lord a few days, not so so long earlier, before the day of Pentecost, now boldly stands up and he accuses his listeners in Jerusalem of rejecting and crucifying this Jesus, whom God has now declared to be both Lord and Christ, the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah. And many in that crowd, doubtless, were those in the crowd who were calling out for him, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, the the murderer, insurrectionist, in exchange. 
And yet now God opened for them a fountain of cleansing by the death of his son. And today he is graciously extending that offer of cleansing to all who will receive it by faith in Christ. As the words of that hymn of the Scottish preacher, Horatius Bonar, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains, white in his blood, most precious, till not a spot remains. That brings us to our second point, the rejection of idolatry. Verse First part of verse 2. The sin and uncleanness from which the people needed to be cleansed in particular is that of idolatry. And so again, we read in verse 2, And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And when God says, I will cut off not just the idols, but the names of the idols, It means that a time is coming when people will no longer ascribe supernatural powers to material objects, whether they are figures carved from wood or graven images made out of metal, or whether they are the idols of our heart and our own imagination, which are far more common today. They'll no longer worship them as divine. And that word name, to cut off names, implies a real existence, a real personality that idolaters will ascribe to idols. This is a very imperfect analogy, and you'll see how it collapses at the end. Little children will typically carry around a stuffed animal. I had my own collection that my mother put away for years, and when I was cleaning her house out after she passed away, I... Lo and behold, they were stuck there in a a trunk. Most of them went through that stage. And we even named our stuffed animals when we take them to bed at night or when we need comfort. We give them names, but little children don't ask their stuffed animals for help when they're scared of the dark. They call out for mom, mommy, or daddy. Or if the old grandpa happens to be babysitting, they'll call out for me and try to find some comfort. In other words, for beings. They call out for beings who really exist. You see, the real temptation of idolatry is that we think we can gain control over our God to get the things we most desire. If our idol is wealth, well, we can literally carry it around in our pocket or our purse in the form of a credit card. That's a a convenient, portable God for many people. And we think we can then manipulate that control that idol whenever we use it to get the things we want. But the tragic thing is that our desire, if it becomes a dominating force in our lives, our desire for finding comfort in material abundance, it begins to fill our hearts. And it controls us like a false god. And whether it's wealth or an obsession over health or the pursuit of pleasure, or that dream house, or it's so common today, the idol of self-esteem, becoming obsessed with what people think of us and trying to cultivate a certain image to those around us. 
Whatever it is, the list goes on. Whatever stands between the living and true God and his worshipers can become an idol. I think the radical, let me suggest the radical redefinition of human nature today, which stands behind all kinds of, well, the, 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 the sexual sins that we see in our society, or even the, the redefinition of what marriage is in our country, is a form of idolatry. Why? Because it's putting human wisdom in the place of God's wisdom, in the place of God's revealed will to us in Scripture. And the Old Testament prophets reveal some of their strongest language to denounce this sin of idolatry in all of its many forms. It's not only willful disobedience to God's law in Scripture, it's rebellion against the law of God that he has written on our conscience, what theologians call natural law. Paul records that in Romans chapter 1. Now Jeremiah writes to the people of Judah in his day, interesting verse, chapter 8, verse 7, even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow and crane, keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. When I was a boy, there were a number of older gentlemen in my neighborhood who had emigrated from countries in Europe, and they had a, a racing pigeon club where they would send their birds out as far as 500 miles away to western Iowa, and I suspect they wagered some bets on that, uh, and they would fly home. Those pigeons could find their way. They'd never been that far. And somehow God had imprinted upon their brain a sense of navigation over uncharted territory, unfamiliar territory, and they'd fly back uh, to their lofts. And storks and sandhill cranes and other birds will keep their annual migration. But God's people reject the knowledge of his will. Not only his written word in Scripture, but what is written on their hearts. They're guilty of the kind of disobedience that wouldn't even occur to a dumb animal, <laughs> Jeremiah says. Idol worshiping, it, it, these idol worshiping humans are more ignorant than brute beasts who, who do what God appoints them to do. Earlier in his book, Zechariah has made a connection between the sin of idolatry and the sin of false prophecy. Chapter 10, verse 2, Zechariah says, for the household gods utter nonsense. Some translations put it, the household gods utter delusions, just false dreams. And the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and they give empty promises. Or they give empty consolation, empty comfort. Therefore the people wander like sheep they are afflicted for the lack of a shepherd, a lack of a true teacher who will care for their needs. And the point of that is idolatry and false teaching always go together. When idols are worshipped, the preaching of the word of God is silenced, and people wander from the truth, and they fall into great evil. Their lives, and soon the whole of human society, becomes defiled. Things that are abhorrent to God and even degrading to the persons who commit them. 
This is really Paul's description of a society that is collapsing. I can read this text later. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. People suppress the truth about the one true God. They turn to idolatry. And the consequence of idolatry is that God gives them up to even more sin. And that leads to the moral disintegration of human society. And Zechariah is saying essentially the same thing in briefer form. Idolatry breeds false teaching, and false teaching leads to more idolatry. It's a vicious circle that only God himself can break by his word and by his sovereign power. And the good news in these verses is not only that God is able to do it, but God will do it finally and forever on that day. His people will be cleansed from the sin of idolatry, and they will turn away from everything that defiles, and it will be no longer possible for any false prophet to deceive and corrupt them. That leads us to our final point, the removal of false prophets. The language here is a bit cryptic. It's, It's couched in Old Testament languages, and we'll just try to unpack it briefly. That starts in the second part of verse 2, through the end of our text, verse 6 of chapter 13. And those verses speak of the removal of false prophets, of those who spoke in the name of the Lord, but who led the people into the sin of idolatry. And just as we've seen, wherever idolatry was found, so were false prophets. But now, as a result of this cleansing fountain, The land is going to be thoroughly purged of their presence and the spirit of uncleanness they produce. Verse 3 describes a fervent devotion to the Lord and a, a rejection of these false prophets. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 and following, describe the duty of all God's people to oppose and then to remove false prophets, even if they were the closest of family members. And so Zechariah builds on that in verse 3, that a father and mother will be among those who lift their hands against their own son if he's a false prophet. Now we have no record in the rest of Scripture that this uh, punishment was ever observed under, under Old Testament law, but Zechariah is describing clearly a time when devotion of those cleansed from their sin will be so intense that love for God will outweigh even family relationships. If you are the only believer in your family, as my wife sadly was and and continues to this present day as far as we know, you know something of that heartache and something of that burden. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Given that kind of spiritual devotion to the Lord, to go back to our text, verses 4 through 6, describe a situation where those who spoke falsely in God's name are now unwilling to be known as prophets anymore. They try desperately to conceal their identity 
Instead of wearing a hairy cloak like the prophet Elijah did and apparently others, they claimed to be a worker of the soil, a day laborer toiling for some farmer. And if someone asks, what are those wounds on your back? They will say, well, the, the wounds that I received in the house of my pr- friend. Those wounds that they're being accused of probably re- were received in some wild pagan rites involving cutting oneself, self-mutilation, like the prophets of Baal did in Elijah's, uh, in that contest against Elijah's God there on Mount Carmel. But when the false prophet in our passage gives an answer, he claims to have been wounded in the house of a friend, perhaps during a drunken brawl where they got into a fight with somebody. Now let me pause here and just summarize by saying these situations that Zechariah describes seem very obscure and just very strange to our modern ears. Let's try to summarize this whole text this morning by asking the question, do they really apply to our present age? So let me ask a few questions. Do we lack for false prophets today? Not if a false prophet is anyone who claims to speak in the name of God with spiritual authority, but speaks contrary to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Paul warns us in Colossians 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive, by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Those elemental spirits, I think, are perhaps even dark forces, evil spirits, powers of darkness that stand behind so much of the false teaching today. This question, are there preachers today who deny the full authority of the Bible? and substitute their own contemporary flawed ideas in its place? Are there teachers who promise worldly prosperity and unending health and freedom from suffering in this world if you can manufacture enough faith uh, in yourself, ultimately, in God who is not clearly described in their preaching? There are plenty of them. I've encountered them in Africa and various countries of South America and here in the United States. Uh, Are there professing Christians who say we can live as we wish because the more we sin, the more grace covers that sin? And are there church leaders who even redefine what sin is instead of following the word of God, but they redefine it according to their own sinful desires? And the list of false teaching goes on. But truth matters to God. And speaking falsely in his name promotes idolatry, and it defiles the people of God. There is growing pressure on us. I don't have to go into this in detail. We know there is growing pressure on us to tolerate false teaching and unbiblical practices in the name of Christian charity, in the name of tolerance, to round off, to smooth off some of those hard edges of the Christian faith that may offend uh, the human mind. But our Lord in his word forbids it. One Old Testament professor I enjoy reading, a fellow from Australia, Barry uh, Webb, says this, the love of God, the love that God commands is never divorced from truth in the way that tolerance is often urged on us today. 
There is a false tolerance, just as there is a false prophecy. Brothers and sisters, the greatest tragedy of being deceived by false teaching is that we lose sight of the cleansing fountain of Christ's blood. I think of, of William Cooper, who's the author of A Hymn We'll Sing, a man who battled frequent depression from boyhood on. Both his parents died, his stepmother died, his closest friend died. He fell into a deep depression. And a Christian friend cared for him during Cooper's emotional collapse and shared with him the gospel message. And Cooper wrote a hymn based on our text, Zechariah 13, verse 1. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would impress these words upon our hearts. Pray that we would not be confused by some of the more obscure details of Zechariah's day, but the clarity and the authority and the truth of your word shines forth. Help us to expose our, our own hearts and minds and souls before the light of your word. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ, that cleansing flow of grace from, from his cross. And grant us moral courage to stand fast in this evil, unbelieving world. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.